This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Oh, oh, wow! Don't they know it's the end of the world? Do you want that more dramatic or... Like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Yes, welcome, 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 one and all to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse, 3 R's weekly discussion of the big picture issues in the world and the local ground-up solutions to them. Bushy is my name. As always with me in the studio as co-conspirator is that daytime talk show maverick guest, Adam Grubb. Hello. What are you talking about? Ah, okay. If you dig not too deep into the not-too-distant past... I was in the Herald Sun today. Where? Yeah. How should... Uh, we'll, we'll come back to that, but you're also a daytime TV guest a few years ago making um, weed smoothies. I was. That was fabulous. If you, if, how can people find that video? Because it's pretty marvellous. <laughs> you and Chrissy Swan. It's probably really not worth digging up. It uh, is. It is at the end. It when is she on. It pulls is on. Strange face. All oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Mm. They pretended not to like my green smoothie on air, but off air they're all getting amongst. Of course. Yeah. Indeed. No, so you were in no the paper today. Uh, what? Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I, I forgot about this, but um. It's it's a letter to the Herald Sun. Garden work suits grub. Some people were just born for their job, like green-fingered bloke mentioned in the Herald Sun recently. I didn't actually realise I was. Um, as co-director of a company called Very Edible Gardens. His name? Adam Grubb. So, A. Grubb is a director of Very Edible Gardens. A delighted Peter from Stall informs us. <laughs> So glad that I made Peter's life better. Yes, he, and, and a, an excited listener to the show he is. And uh, <laughs> joining us on rotation from her coastal retreat, the excellent barrel charger, Sarah Coles. How are you, Sarah? I'm going to Japan. You are going to Japan. We were speaking off air about some of the uh, an unknown to most animal threats in Japan. Oh, yeah. speak to that? I'm going to Hokkaido. Mm-hmm. And um, since deciding that I was going to Japan, my sister Katie started texting me newspaper articles about people being mauled by bears in Hokkaido. Fabulous. I think six people have been eaten this year already. <laughs> Shit. So. What were they, is there a, is there a generally agreed response to bear attack? Because um, the great white shark thing obviously is the nose punch. Well, my partner today said if, if a bear is coming for you, the best thing to do is to not overreact. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm like, oh, yeah. that seems like the kind of thing that you can't even really get into your muscle memory. Because yeah. if it's 300 kilograms with 10 giant, like, really Chef's sharp nice. claws and it's going to eat your stomach open in mm. one go. You're hardwired you to respond stay- to that. <laughs> yeah, so you mm. have to go, okay, there's a bear, the tree's over there, can I make it to the tree? And then I don't even know if that's true because some bears can climb trees. So mm. Big ones can probably just shake them down. <laughs> Oh, yeah, like a nut. 
<laughs> the Colsey, the almond. <laughs> and, of course, the Bicycle Whisperer Weekly panellist and all-round fabulous person running the show is Jed McCartney. How are you tonight, Jed? I'm well, thank you. Have you ever had to evade animal threat? No, I haven't, but I thought there was one type of bear that you lay down and play dead... And then the other type... That's Yogi Bear. You didn't. No, there's like, if it's a black bear, you do, and if it's a brown bear, you don't, or vice versa. <laughs> Difficult sure to tell in late daytime conditions. Uh, tonight on the show, we are talking with Russell Shields from the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre about the issue of food security issue, uh, sorry, food security issues for refugees and asylum seekers in Melbourne, and we'll be catching up on all of the news from something very close to our hearts here at GTA, the food justice truck. So we'll be chatting with him shortly. What has caught our eyes this week, dudes? Who would like to go first? I can uh, do it. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. do it. You go. All right. Well, this is... It, what caught my eye is a website called Project Implicit, which I actually read about ages ago in a book by uh, Jonathan Haidt. It's a website where you can go and test your own implicit subconscious racism. So what they do is they show... It flashes... It's like a game you play. And you've got to have your fingers on the keys, left and right buttons. And a, a white face or a black face will, will be sent in, up in front of you. And so will either a positive or negative word, like uh, happy, peace, or awful, terrifying. And if, you, if you're asked to put the nice words and the black faces both on the right you may find, if you're implicitly racist, uh, that is a more difficult task. There'll be a just slightly longer response time and you'll make more mistakes than if you're asked to put the white faces and the positive words on, on the same side. And so what this tells you is, and, and I have to admit that I, oh, it's an awful feeling when you feel this little struggle inside you and um, that I registered like slightly implicitly racist and apparently most people do and this may be something to do with you know who knows like the first faces you see when you're born but it could be at this really deep level so it helps you see that you are prejudging people before you've even heard them speak before you know anything about them Mm. and we probably most of us have a fair bit of work to do in that area and it's kind of it's confronting, but it, f- it feels pretty good to, to own it and go, well, I'm going to have to consciously work to compensate for that. Mm. I don't know if you can overcome it or not, but what, what tends to happen, uh, Jonathan Haidt writes about this, is that when you have a pre- pre-conscious uh, feeling, most of your conscious brain is actually there rationalizing that feeling into things that sound justifiable. Mm. But really the feeling was there first. Yep. And so if this feeling is there, maybe some of your conscious thoughts are actually not fair. They're just ones that have formed to justify your feeling. And so we really need to do a huge you know, amount of effort to, to do a bit of inward looking, um, most people I'd say, and think about how to consciously overcome and compensate for it. But yeah, yeah. it's a little bit... A little bit confronting, but give it a go. It's projectimplicit.org. Hmm, interesting. Colour, well, colour recognition as well is an interesting thing because I remember watching a study, for example, where uh, lions, they had um, 
worked out that the darker the colour of a mane on a male line, the more virile he is, and he, because he's, um, I think his mane darkens with more testosterone, so he's a, a better bet for the female lines. So that colour recognition thing exists across most, mam- uh, most mammals, most animals as well, in varying degrees. But I have actually heard people who are outwardly and openly racist uh, defend their stance be- by saying that um, they're hardwired to detect differences because that's how we survived evolution, etc. Mm. Yeah. Some funny arguments out there in the ethos. <laughs> yes, Paul. Mm-hmm. Yes, let's not speak of that. Colsey. Mm, mine, I was looking at Colours magazine and I was looking in their section Apocalypse, which I often do of nice. an evening, just for some light reading. And this guy is about some guy in China. It's called Making Your Escape. Zhao Chen Weng, 70 after the tsunami in 2004 that killed 230,000 people, he felt compelled to protect people, so he designed a tsunami escape pod. Yeah. Um, I had a look well, at this. It's have quite, you seen it? Yeah. What makes it funny is that no one wants his pod, you know. <laughs> it's, it's a bit crap. But, um, and then it says the Chinese have a saying, fire and water have no mercy. It's like that's a pretty good saying mm. to start with. Um and so he's made this pod. I think it takes six people, yeah, five to eight metres across. No, five people. Five to eight metres across. It's got stuff in it, seven days' worth of food and water, radio, GPS, medicine. Uh, in the middle of the arc will be a round table containing a plastic automatic toilet. That's where I had it. Right, <laughs> right in the middle of the pod. Because that's what I would be thinking about in, like, a life-threatening situation. And then, so he wrote to the Premier of China, he's written three times, and said he would like to donate his invention to the country. Mm. And he has only received one reply, a note from the State Council that, he says, it almost made me burst a lung. It said, no one will use your invention <laughs> so <laughs> the state council in China are mean and no one wants his pod. Ah, oh, but he's not giving up. He says lots of great painters were not recognised at first, but later their paintings became valuable. So he's basically the Van Gogh of escape pods. <laughs> right. Got a missing ear and everything. And I think everyone should look at this article because it's got a picture of him holding the uh, the demo pod. It's worth it for that alone. <laughs> So just go to Colours magazine. So it looks like they did a whole edition with the theme Apocalypse. Yeah. Required yep. reading. It's we'll one have of to the greatest magazines in the world. What is the magazine? Colours magazine. Yes, but it's spelt the American way without a U. Uh, C-O-L-O-R-S. American English. That is such a great segue, Colsey. What was yesterday's date, do you know? Um, it was Independence Day. Yesterday was the 4th of July. And in the afternoon, I rang um, my good friend and friend of the show, Mark Moncrief. He's an expat San Franciscan. And I said to him, can you think of a better way to spend the 4th of July than you and I going to the late session of Independence Day resurgence? <laughs> to which he jokingly said we could put on Donald Trump caps and shout USA, USA. Um, so we went with the first idea because we couldn't get a Trump hat at that time of night. So, have you guys seen the first Independence Day movie? I have not. You have not? Is it it Aliens? It's 20 years ago today. Has it got Will Smith in it? It has. Sort of launched him a bit. Do they wear Ray-Bans and there's a thing that flashes It was the 90s. Everyone wore Ray-Bans, yeah. Okay, so I'll give you the The basic premise of the first movie was that on July the 4th, Independence Day, everyone's getting ready to have a barbecue and these gigantic spaceships pop up out of the sky 
and place themselves directly above every capital city of the world, every major city. Okay, so the premise of the, the sequel is that 20 years afterwards, so, like earlier something massive and threatening has happened and the threat was very, very real and immediate and beyond debate and the entire species of humanity was going to be brown bread if everyone didn't band together and so everyone got together and they got on with it and humanity prevailed and in fact afterwards was kind of better off as a result. Can you see where I'm going with this? So we have a similar thing going on, but any need to do anything is usually debated and denied and delayed. So we have the climate issue, energy, economic inequality and fragility. We've got race, gender and sexual orientation still regarded by many with the same ancient belief systems that created hate crimes and public stonings. Yeah, Adam over here. So, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> so my point for discussion, and we don't have long to discuss it, is a large-scale alien invasion from a supremely armed and organised alien species what's required to unify humanity and move us beyond our petty differences discuss it's a large-scale alien what so well large-scale alien invasion so the whole premise of this movie is that like 20 years after the first movie and after the first invasion earth is united there's no more wars no more armed you've still got little sort of guerrilla groups in africa and, and they feature in there because they're really good at hunting the aliens down and killing them um and all these other things going on but you have on the whole a fairly unified species that has um, reverse engineered all this alien technology to improve itself and be more energy and make a better society. But now again they face this huge dilemma and, believe it or not, gather and, 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 and defeat the whole thing. So Obviously it would be very convenient if climate change was caused by an alien race, preferably green, mm. um, different looking, ugly looking, mm. yeah. Yeah, it just sort of got me thinking. I was driving home thinking to myself, you know, and not that I'm sort of naive or childlike, but, you know, it was a movie that, that the underlying premise was banding together and uniting as one sorts shit out. And yet here we are, like, just after this election, which has seen a fairly broad spectrum of Australian society represented as a result. There's even a moment in the movie where um, Jeff Goldblum's character's father, played by Jude Hirsch, love that guy, um, this kid says to him, my dad said your son never went to space and it's all a conspiracy. So you've got, like, even in the face, in this movie, even in the face of the fact that these giant spaceships 20 years earlier had come around and conquered all these cities and crushed them and laid them to waste, there's still someone sitting there going, nah, it's not happening. Okay, so this was my, my thing driving home. It's like, we almost need that. We need some gigantic UFO invasion because all these other things that are so pressing and so important and so real don't seem to be triggering any mm. immediate large-scale response. Well, could we could we fake it, Bushy? Well, you and I like, could, yeah. Like kitten-eating aliens. Mm. Also kitten-eating. Destroying the environment. You just need like, a torch, some cellophane. Yeah, and a cloudy night. And a boombox. Yeah. Well, what did Michael J. Fox do to his father? He had the... Darth Vader suit and the Van Halen guitar solo. <laughs> yeah. That worked. That that got action. That's how his father went and asked his mother. I am getting onto a movie segue here. I probably shouldn't. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on 3 R. You are listening to a triple R podcast. Podcast. Is that right? Yeah, it's right. It's, it just means like a radio show on the internet. I wish I could get... I've never turned that radio on. You've never listened to my show? Is that what you're telling me? Oh, I did one day in the thing. <laughs> you're listening to Green in the Apocalypse on 3 R, And we are joined tonight by Russell Shields from the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Hello, Russell. 
Hello, Sarah. Hello, listeners. Good right. evening. Russell has helped countless people gain access to fresh food in this country. To kick off, he owned cafes, lectured in hospitality. Then he, while he was working for the Commonwealth Games Organising Committee in 2006, he was appalled by the amount of food waste and had a food justice epiphany. He <laughs> saw a job going at a new food rescue operation called Second Bite. He worked there for seven years. In that time, Second Bite grew from being a few people huddled around a laptop to a national non-profit rescuing and redistributing nearly 6 million kilograms of produce every year. In 2014, Russell co-founded the Community Grocer, a not-for-profit and social enterprise that aims to improve access to, for people living in public housing to fresh, affordable food. He was awarded the Churchill Fellowship to study international models of food rescue and community initiatives. And these days, he works at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, working to ensure asylum seekers have access to good food. Well, I heard Russell ask for a short intro. I thought you'd delivered it, but then you came back with a vengeance. <laughs> I couldn't... Well, okay, and that's I all for tonight. <laughs> there was just so many things, though. That's an impressive CV. If we had to write that out, there'd be an arthritic wrists and a nifty <laughs> pen, I think. There is. I was trying to work out where you got some of that from, Sarah. Very well researched. I think it was on Wikipedia. Might I think. be. Um, I had to write a bio the other day. I'm speaking at this the Global Ideas Forum that's coming up. And it has to be one of the worst experiences mm. to write your own bio. It feels weird. Yeah, because mm. you have to do it in, is it third person? When you're like, Russell mm. is so yeah. great. He mm. has done so many things. Yeah. Just... Long walks on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> 18th century French romantic poetry. Um, so second bite research would show that just over 5% of Australians are food insecure. We need to define that term before we move. Can you define food security for the Triple R listener? Yeah, tough one. It's a, it's a very complex thing, and semantics and words are very powerful when trying to address an issue. So food security, uh, technically we're talking about does everybody, all individuals, have access to safe, affordable, culturally appropriate food that enables them to live a healthy and active life? Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of look at it more, you know, how do we simplify that? How does that make sense? If we look globally, do we have enough food? And the answer is yes. Since, I think, 2008, um, we have a problem where we have more obese people in the world than we have hungry. Jesus. So that sort of throws it out of whack straight away. Mm. Um, so absolutely, globally, there's enough food. It's just not distributed equally and depending on where you live. In Australia, do we have enough food? Absolutely. We produce enough food to feed 60 million people every year, three times our population. Mm. That's just the wheat crop, I think, is it? <laughs> uh, no. That's everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so we're, we're a big exporter, especially fruit mm. and veg, you know, big exporters. Yeah. Um, so, you know, is the food available in Australia? Yes. Are we a food-secure nation? Technically, yes. Mm. Um, but at a community level and at a, a local or a more individual level, can everybody put three meals a day, seven days a week, on the table for themselves and their family? Mm. And the answer in Australia is no. <coughs> and particularly for certain demographics or certain geographic regions. So it's a very complex issue in why are people food insecure, where they're food insecure, what are the causes and the consequences of food insecurity. Mm. And so all of that complexity makes it hard to give a quick sort of answer. Yeah. And, I, and again, I'll sort of, I'm going on a bit, but are people hungry in Australia? Yes. Who, who? What demographics are the hungriest in Australia? 
Yeah, starting at the the data, one challenge we face is the data's not very good at all. This is an issue we know nowhere near enough about to really address it properly. In the city of Melbourne, for a start, we've got like seven <coughs> percent of students, international students, are food insecure um, in Melbourne. Sorry, seven percent of the city of Melbourne, and within that, international students are higher. So they're they're a demographic you wouldn't normally pick straight away. Mm. We can go to urbanised communities in Brisbane that are studying that are 25%. Mm. We've got Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander populations in the western suburbs of Melbourne, around 40%. Yeah. And then when we get to people seeking asylum, we're hitting old studies at 70% and newer data saying 90% of that population Jeez. ran out of food last year and were unable to purchase more. So, again, is this a problem in Australia? Yes, for certain demographics. And depending where you live, so regionally in Victoria, you're more likely to be food insecure than if you live in an urban population mm. as well. Yeah, hey, I mean, why, why is that especially? I mean, I guess it's more greater social isolation causing, not, like not necessarily having the fallback network of people around you that will offer food. I mean, why is that? Yeah, I like to think of it, it's a good point, Bushiran, is it, an individual food security, and I like to think of it as community food security. Mm. So how do we as a community provide for everybody rather than just is one person okay? And with that, the inputs are very... Um, there's a lot of inputs to having food. Uh, do you have enough money? Mm. Are you physically able to access that food? Do you rely on transport? Do you have mobility issues? Mm. Is there awareness about what types of food and the utilisation of the food... So there's food you may like for certain cultures that may not be available where you live. Yep. Mm. So all of these factors add up, and that's what makes it a complex issue. You've got multiple inputs that determine whether an individual or a community is able to have that mm. basic human right, that very simple thing that I left home before. Yeah, I left home before, and I was yeah, with Archie, my six-year-old, having having dinner, which I think most of it ended up over him and the table and the floor, but... There's just that joy of food and what it brings to both, you know, a family and a community. Mm. And yet the damning stats and the damning facts are here in this lucky country that produces three times more than what we need, we have this significant and real problem of food insecurity. How, is it, what's the, isn't it like one in 20 people are food insecure in Australia? Like it's quite large, isn't it? Yeah, the national data we have, again, the data's, is severely lacking and it's one thing we need to, if we truly want to understand and address this issue we need to start with some national monitoring mm. around food insecurity but the current levels around 1.2 million australians last year ran out of food unable unable to purchase more so that's around that yeah. sort of five percent figure mm -hmm. but again we know it's a lot higher in demographics and all of the very smart people far smarter than me the academics and the researchers they all say that's a very conservative figure yeah. And so um, you work now at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Can you just, I mean, most Triple R listeners will be familiar with that, but can you briefly explain what that place is? Yeah, so it's the um, largest humanitarian organisation focused on people seeking asylum. We aim to uphold the human rights of people seeking asylum by supporting them, empowering them and protecting them. We have around 1,400 members who access our services from our base or head office as we call it or the Starship Enterprise sometimes as it's known in Footscray and a satellite office in Dandenong and we run over 30 programs um, from legal, health and particularly 
um, down to the Innovation Hub, some of the new programs are running around education, employment and empowerment. And for a community that are absolutely the most vulnerable we have in Australia at the moment. Mm. Do, you want, do you want to tell us some of the issues that asylum seekers face accessing food? Yeah, it's a... It's a good question. I think when we look at the centre, Con established the centre. We just had our 15th birthday, which is awesome, great and terrible in the same yeah. vein. Yeah, yeah. yeah. a um, birthday that you shouldn't have had to have. Yeah. But I don't think we have a government at the moment, so who knows what might happen in, a, in the short term. But um, with 15 years ago, he started as a food bank. So his basic, the premise of what he started was a student project. Uh, how do we su- support this community? And the people he aimed to support were coming in, and what he noticed was they were more often than not hungry. And he could see it and feel it in the way they were talking and was asking. And, like, and what that did is he thought, well, if I can't at least feed them and put some food in their bellies, then how can we address these multiple issues that they're facing around um, their opportunity to have this wonderful fair life that Australia can offer them? Um, so it started as a food bank, mm-hmm. uh, 15 years ago. Now, as the organisation has a community meal program every day that serves over 200, close to 250 people every day for lunch. Mm-hmm. Combination of our wonderful members, people from the hub downstairs, our staff and our volunteers. Mm-hmm. And I remember, Sarah, you came in for a lovely lunch one day and if you want to talk about the power of food, then you come along and you have lunch in a setting like that and you can really see the impact it has. Yeah, I got the impression that um, it's not just about getting food. It was all, it also had a big social aspect, like a connection between people who possibly might be a bit isolated when they've come to this new place that seemingly hates them because they can't get any of the things that they need. So they get to go to this place every day and spend time with people that understand. Mm. But, yeah, I, yeah, it seemed like it was about more than food when I went there. For sure. I think it is. I think having uh, having dinner with your family is more than about the food, and that's what the centre offers, that that connection. Mm. And for people who um, are dealing with what they're having to deal with, mm. to sit there and have a meal and feel welcome, feel respected, um, to be involved in the meal. Mm. So about 40% of the volunteers in the kitchen are people seeking asylum, so they're mm. part of the preparation. Yeah. And part of the, you know, the way we have our food and our way we interact in that space. Mm-hmm. And what's happening with the, the issue of food for people seeking asylum is so much of it reverts back to a financial factor. So poverty and income is one of the main causes, if not the main cause of food insecurity. Yep. And we have a population that if they have access to Newstart, they only get 89% of it. Mm-hmm. So their finances, you can imagine, their wallets are empty and some of the anecdotal evidence we have is around $20 a week they might have left for food mm-hmm. um, when the average Australian male needs $130 a week for food. My boy is six and he's already getting close to that at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we know it's a big issue and we have this wonderful food bank that provides um, that direct emergency food relief mm-hmm. for around 260 families every week. Mm. Um, that access that program. But what we needed to do was how do we support the nearly 12,000 people seeking asylum in Victoria? Mm. How do we spread our wings across the state? And Con always talks about we need to help more. How can we help more? And that was, I guess, some of the beginnings of the Food Justice Drive. 
Ah, mm. yeah, we wanted to know about well, that. Might, we should chat about that after the break, give that a nice chunk of time after the, the next track. Um, but Adam, I think you were about to ask a question before, were you not? Oh, sure. Well, I was wondering, so uh, to get out of the poverty, or if they are lucky enough to have access to this minimal, limited amount of new start, uh, there, there are limitations on being able to work on some of the visas too, is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And it's our legal team uh, are sort of mind-blowing in their, in their skill and ability to um, navigate one of the most complex legal systems that there is for, for people in this situation. And um, the, the factors that are sort of playing out in their life and again, when we talk about how do we access an adequate, regular, safe supply of food, um, we have financial, but then we have physical access, we have public transport, we have cultural aspects of the food that they're looking for. So some of the foods that they may be used to at home mm. obviously may not be able to access here in the regularity that they would have. I've got an interesting anecdote for that because probably a decade ago when my wife was working in um, a similar sector, I met a fellow who had come out from Sri Lanka and back where he, where he was from, I mean, the cultural norm was that um, a, a wife or mother did the cooking. Okay, mm. so he had never cooked. And when he landed in Australia, he didn't know how to boil rice. <laughs> and so for, I think, three months, he lived. He told me he lived more or less on white bread with margarine or, or jam because that's what he... Like, he used to sit rice in a pot and he's like, oh, what's wrong with it? Why won't the rice? <laughs> and, um, and so the, that, those levels of cultural... What, what you're saying is a culturally appropriate meal it might be food um, food guidelines because of faith but it might also just be that the regular family structure of how that food lands on your plate i mean even if you go right back to say post-war migration the italians and the greeks coming out here were very much mm. a fam a family oriented um, eating structure where the women were preparing the meals and whether we agree with that or not in australia um if that's where someone's coming from that's part of what makes up their food experience and that's what they're going to know yeah, absolutely. And it uh, raises two quick points. One, there's a, some wonderful groups, community groups around there. I know one in Williamstown that work with elderly men mm. who, you know, have suffered the tragic loss of their wife. But for, you know, like my dad, for 30, 40 years, he, he's never been the main cook at home. Mm. So all of a sudden, there they are going, I need to feed myself and I don't have the skills, I don't have the knowledge or the ability. So there's some great programs working at that level for elderly men on gr- working in groups, bringing them together, teaching the base around cooking, food access, budgeting, nutrition, mm. which are, are great to see. And great to see, again, a community response to a clear need for someone to have that, you know, safe and adequate food supply. Mm. And the other thing I've, I've certainly heard and, and, and witnessed around people seeking asylum is, you know, the male role. Mm. And I think of, you know, again, I think of myself and the, you know, you have a family and you have that, Feeling of you know I need to provide and it's my role as a male uh, to you feel that sometimes as a man as, mm-hmm. as regardless the, of whether you agree with it or not yeah, yeah. exactly exactly and what I've uh, from speaking to men at the centre particularly from some of the cultures they come from yep so they're now in you know this wonderful you know fair and, and open and sort of land of opportunity and standing in the queue at the food bank absolutely feeling that, that sort of feeling demor- demoralised that they mm. can't take home what they could where they came from. Yeah. Mm. So they're sort of grasping and grabbing at food. So that's 
when we talk about the impact, and it's one thing to really remember is the impact of food insecurity. So not only do we know little about why and the causes, but the impact we know is absolutely severe. Mm. It's not just the burning in the belly and, oh, I'm a little bit hungry, it's mm. getting you know, lunchtime or dinner time, and I haven't eaten. There is significant evidence around the physical impact, around the emotional impact, mm. around the mental health, negative mental health impact, mm. and the social isolation and the social impact that it has. So seeing what the centre can provide through meals, and, and we'll get to the truck about what we can provide to enable some men in the community to provide for their family mm. what so many of us feel so privileged and lucky able to do, seeing that firsthand has been, for me, a very powerful thing. Awesome. Awesome. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Triple R is where you are, and Greening the Apocalypse is the program you are listening to. Thank you very much, Russell Shields. Russell Shields is in the studio with us this evening from the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. And before the track you just heard, we were having a bit of a chat to define the terms of food insecurity in Australia and what it can mean to a person, not just nutritionally, but in terms of their culture and their sense of pride and self-worth. And we are a program that always attempts to bring a problem back to its solution. And one solution that uh, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre has taken is the food justice truck. So let's talk about that a bit, Russell. Tell us about the food justice truck. Truck, I love it. I get to tell people I'm a truck driver, which I never thought I would be able to do, but it's quite enjoyable. And again, I snuck to primary school the other day, picked a little Archie up in the food justice truck and it was... um, felt quite good when you sit up high and driving around. Coolest <laughs> dad too. Yeah. So, because um, I sort of touched on earlier was, you know, how do we improve food security for people seeking asylum? So we look at how do we address the financial barrier and the physical barrier. Um, the centre looked at various ways of opening new food banks around town and what are some of the ways we could do it. And one thing and I, I certainly believe in this myself, as I did with the, the community grocer as well, is how do we use you know, market forces to address these seemingly intractable solutions? So looking at enterprise, Patrick and Con came up with this, this concept of a, of a truck. You know, let's get some wheels. So if we go mobile, we can uh, address the physical barrier of going into the communities, particularly because... Um, we know where people seeking asylum live. You know, the government have this data and, you know, they're placing them in certain communities. So we know where they are. You know, it's 34% live in Dandenong and you know, 70% in, in Sunshine. So we know where they are. So we can mobilise into them with some wheels. So good start. The second one was the financial barrier. So how do we address that? And the food bank model, while great, will continue as it does as an emergency food relief solution rely on philanthropy and the organization has that challenge of how do we provide you know this amazing legal support we've got a medical clinic we've got a health clinic we've got complex casework and um how do we provide that you know where does food security sit in the space of, of funding so we thought about well they thought about what if we sell the food to the general public and at the same time offer a 75 percent discount to people seeking asylum so that means they could turn up with their $20, as the anecdotal evidence told us, and turn that into $80 worth of food. 
Awesome. So that kind of makes sense. Mm. Then the business brains go, well, that's gonna, we're going to lose a bit of money on that. So we offset that by obviously selling to the general public. And what we're also doing is creating this community market feel. This is a shop for everybody. So we don't have a queue over there and a queue here. We have you know, a till system where any person can walk up, shop at the truck. We press one button um, if they're a person seeking asylum. Bang, the numbers drop all the way down from $80 to $20. So last year we served over 4,000 customers, over 1,000 of those customers. So 20% of our customers are people seeking asylum. And they average... Funny enough, $21 per head spend every time they come and shop <laughs> with us. So they're literally buying up what we thought. And that's a lot of food. Mm. I was out at Thomastown today at Thomastown Primary School, even though it's school holidays and it was felt like about minus four degrees with a sideways wind and a little bit of rain. Um, we had about 30 people seeking asylum turn up and one lady spent $64. That's $240 worth of fruit and veg for her family. You know, she had six siblings. And... To see that amount of food and to see the smile on her face was, was amazing. So, and that's the truck's role. You know, we're engaging the community, the general public coming in shop, we're engaging them to talk about the issue and access high-quality, ethically sourced, you know, um, great-quality fruit and veg. Mm. 85% of everything we sell on the truck is fruit and vegetables, so we're a produce market. Mm-hmm. So food truck can be confusing... Um, what are we going to sell? Is it a Wagyu beef burger or a pulled pork roll? <laughs> no, it's a produce truck. Mm-hmm. Or so a no, are hipsters allowed near the truck? Or? We'll take any hipsters' money, of course, yes. Um, and then what do you mean ethically sourced? Yeah, so I think it's interesting. And so as a business, whenever, as all businesses do, we make choices about how we operate. And through our centre, through our values, we talk about... Um, Ethics, ethics and openness and transparency and, and especially in a food system which can be quite dark and murky. Mm. So the truck is designed with this beautiful open side door that comes up. We, we crowdfund it, cutting back a bit, 150000 through Start Some Good, uh, a very successful crowdfunding campaign thanks to our amazing supporters uh, from the centre. Um, half went to build the truck and then half went to a staff member, which was luckily myself. And from that... We built this truck that opens up out the side. And what that does is when you come to the truck, you can see in. You can see the shelves. You can see, you know, where I hide the bags and where the, you know, the tongs are and all of the little bits and pieces. And that's about this openness that we don't have in the issue of people seeking asylum and we don't have in the food system. Mm-hmm. I did notice that you had where the... When I went to the truck, it had exactly where the produce came from each item. It had a sign saying the actual farm... Yeah, we again, so our choices as a business, we look at where do we purchase our goods, be it everything from the wood panelling that lines the truck coming from a, a salvage yard um, to the fruit and veg we sell, to the bread that we sell, to the tea we sell, um, to the fact the truck is a zero waste, so it's a diesel electric hybrid truck. Um, we had Yost Baker come on board and help us design some of the strategies around the truck. So, again, it's simple choices around how do we impact our community, socially, and our environment. And every business has to make these choices. Why not make good ones Mm. is the way we operate. So we purchased our food from a wholesaler called Spade and Barrow. um, And we also are are working on some more direct farm relationships where we can. We think we shorten the food supply chain as much as possible. And again, that transparency, as you were seeing, Sarah, on the price tags, where does the food come from? 
and we're selling it. So we have the two prices, which we have had a few customers go, oh, this is amazing, potatoes for 50 cents. $1.99 for the general public and 50 cents for people seeking Mm. asylum. But we have it right there. We're not trying to hide the fact Mm. that we're a trading business and we need customers to shop Mm -hmm. to generate the income so we can have the social impact we're looking for and improve food security for people seeking asylum. And don't um, Spade and Barrow, don't they do something like they buy the entire crop from the farmer? Is that... Yeah, they look at buying some of the wonky food. Yeah. So we have some, you know, the, the curly carrots. And I love you know, Katie, my partner, was, was one of the founders. And um, that every, not every carrot can be a supermodel line. I thought it was, <laughs> yeah. a, it was a ripping line for describing it. Um, that, that was my next question for you, is that your partner, Katie Barfield, has done a great many amazing food justice projects as well. Her resume would be as long as yours in that area. And so do you, comp- long, do you compete with each other to see who has the most ethical ingredient when you're cooking dinner? <laughs> of course. <laughs> but, and then do you ever um, do anything crap? Like do you ever go, hey, Katie, let's get McDonald's. Let's just let's get McDonald's. Get to the bad food. I'm sick of all this ethical stuff. Oh, look, I, <laughs> I like to... Deny the 2am walk into the arches that has often or sometimes happened after a slight few too many ales. The walk um, of shame. The walk of shame, yeah. It's more the morning of pain, I think, rather than wake up in your stomach going, oh. Um, But, yeah, look, it's interesting, and I think... You're the power um, couple. You're the food justice power couple. Oh, that's... That's pretty good. Rather embarrassing, that is. um, Look, it's great to have, have a partner who... It's in a similar field. I think a lot of people have that. You know, mm. you're attracted to, to like-minded people. And, and with food, it, it, it can be hard. And, of course, we, we all want to do the right thing and we want to buy the most ethical meat we can and the fruit and veg we want to know. We want to be hugging the farmer as we <laughs> pull the carrot out of his top pocket. But um, it's not that easy to always do. Yeah. And you've got to allow yourself. And, and the guilt, it's like parenting. There's always a guilt. You can never do it all. So yeah. you've got to allow yourself to, to do things wrong. And there has been some very interesting looks across the table when, where did you get that from? Um, <laughs> that, that happens. But the North Pole? Yeah. Well, it, it sounds like uh, purchasing at the food justice truck wouldn't be a bad way to go. Where is a good spot to find you? Yeah, look, we certainly at the moment, we need more customers, more people to shop mm-hmm. because both customers are what we're looking for. We're looking for general public. We're looking for specifically in our city site. So we're at 148 Lonsdale Street, at the front of the Wesley Church every single Wednesday, mm-hmm. 11 a.m. to 2.30, so lunchtime. Mm-hmm. So pop down in lunch break. Grab some watermelon, grab some fruit. If you want some more veggies, they're all there. Grab some beautiful homemade jams and chutneys from one of our volunteers. We've got dench bread, amazing mm. dench bread in the city. Storm at a teacup tea. Great products targeted for that city market mm-hmm. right there at the front of the Wesley Church every Wednesday. Awesome. Do you do food boxes as well through the truck? We don't at the moment. We're looking at it. Okay. But if someone came up and said, I'll have a fruit and veggie box, we will make it for you. Yeah. So. Fantastic. Yeah. Hey, we should put some sort of a link up on our Facebook page or show page. We surely will. will. Hey, Russell, how can people find out where the food justice truck's going to be? Okay. Go to the all the W's, asrc.org.au, and there's a forward slash food justice. Mm-hmm. And it's got the list of all of our sites. We're at Footscray Primary School every Friday. We're at Thomastown. Every second Tuesday, Thomastown Primary School. And the 
alternate Tuesday. We're at Dallas at the Hume City Hub. Superb. Thank you, Russell, for catching up with us this evening. Thank you, Jed, for hitting all of the buttons in correct order. Thank you, Colsey, for coming up. Have a fantastic time in Japan. Don't get eaten by a bear. Yeah. Cool. I've got a bell. You've got a <laughs> Hey, Adam, have you got a... What's coming up next week? Rafter Sass Ferguson is going to be talking about whether organic gardening can feed the world, amongst other interesting topics. Awesome stuff. We'll see you next Tuesday, but until then, have all the fun. <laughs> This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.